to a fresh year and a fresh approach to stay in the loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. If you haven't joined us before on this show, this is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people, people in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences, and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. Sometimes I have guests in the studio and you know what? Sometimes I'm going to share an interview that I have done through the magic of the internet. This show on Stay in the Loop with Lucy is one of those. It's all about lasting behaviour change. My guest is Tanya Curtis from FABIC, which stands for Functional Assessment and Behavioural Interventions Clinic. The show is all about change, behaviour change. Now, I know you will be sitting there and saying, how amazing. She's got her finger on the pulse. She knew that a couple of weeks after New Year, we might all be having a smidgen of a wobble about those New Year's resolutions, about the decisions we've made to change patterns of behavior that didn't work in 2017, or dare I say it longer than that, in our lives to date, we say, yes, we're going to change. We're committed to it. We're dedicated to that change. And then something happens or a collection of things happens. And bit by bit, we're not going to the gym every day. We're not staying off chocolate. And bit by bit, we're just slipping on whatever those New Year's resolutions were, whatever those pledges to ourselves and to others were. Sometimes it's behaviours. Sometimes it's not things we're going to do. We might choose not to have a temper tantrum. We might choose to speak more respectfully and kindly to people. We might choose to call our parents or our friends or our children more often. Why does it slip? As you can see, these questions are not related to any particular age or any particular time in your life. So this show is going to be relevant to anyone who has unwanted behaviours and I suspect that's all of us at some time in our lives. In each of these shows we talk about the key being the marker that communicates with us and tells us that something isn't quite right. Well, when I interviewed Tanya Curtis, I realised that she understands this and lives this and has worked with this for a very long time. She's got a book out called the Body Life Skills Program and this interview gives you some background to that book and why it's so needed. We don't really talk about the book very much in it but everything we talk about is in the book. So worth investing in. I do actually have one copy to give away. So if you send me an email about the thing that you have taken out of this podcast that's really stayed with you, then I would love to send it to you. So take a comfy seat. Make sure that you have perhaps a little cup of tea next to you or a glass of water. Strap yourself in and enjoy. Welcome, Tanya Curtis, to Triple H and Stay in the Loop with Lucy. Thank you for having me. I have been reading your book, Body Life Skills, and it is making me look at behaviours that I have, behaviours that are in our family, behaviours that I see at work, in life, in a completely different way. You talk about um, the definition of anxiety. Could you illustrate anxiety, what it means, why we have it, bearing in mind this is such an an enormous problem that's growing at the moment? Yeah, what we've got to understand, Lucy, is that anxiety is not always the picture of what people think it is, because we often um, have an image in our mind of what we think anxiety is and Um, allocate that word to people who might be exhibiting extreme symptoms such as panic attacks or 
heart palpitations or severe sweating or um, other higher intensity behaviours that we associate with anxiety. But from my perspective, when I'm working with um, behaviour, whether that be my own or whether it be a client's or somebody else's, the reality is, is that we're all experiencing varying forms of intensity um, of anxiety on a daily basis. So we can have um, low symptoms of uh, low intensity symptoms of anxiety, um, which a lot of times people don't associate to anxiety. But the reality is, is that every single person in the world is using at times behaviours that they prefer not to. And we tend to call those the unwanted behaviours. But I'm also quoted as saying is that all unwanted behaviour is preceded by anxiety. So if a person's unwanted behaviour is that they're eating too much food, rather than addressing the food um, uh, or the eating of the food, we've got to look at um, what is happening for that person that they're experiencing anxiety because the, the overeating is simply a consequence of the person finding something in the world um, challenging and, and therefore they're exhibiting signs of anxiety. So whether it's overeating, undereating, um, depression, anger, um, smoking, uh, temper tantrums, withdrawal, I, I could go on and, and list a whole array of unwanted behaviours um, and we all have them. They're all actually preceded by anxiety first. So anxiety is not being equipped to deal with what is in front of you. Um, if I just add one word in there, it's not feeling equipped to deal with what's in front of you. Mm. Um, and, and I often replace that word with uh, the word feeling with perceiving, mm. because a lot of the time it's not what a person is or is not equipped to deal with. It's whether they perceive that they're equipped to deal with what life's presenting and that perception, um, whether it be real or not, that perception is real to that person. So we always have to understand it from the user's perspective. The person who's using the unwanted behaviour is just going, ah, there's something they are experiencing that they do not yet perceive that they're equipped to deal with. That's such a great distinction because so often with people that we're supporting, for example, we can see that they're fully equipped to deal with what's in front of them and that even though it might be a very challenging situation, as an outside observer, you see that they are, you, they do have the skills to deal with it, mm. yet they perceive that they don't. And sometimes that's because they're in the middle of it and they're spinning um, as opposed to just taking a moment, stepping back and looking at it objectively, which is where talking it out with someone else can give them that opportunity to step back and look at it objectively. Absolutely. Um, it's very easy for us to project judgment onto other people and project what we think people are and are not capable of dealing with um, rather than actually taking a step back and go, it's got actually nothing to do with my judgment. It's got nothing to do with my assessment of what I think you are capable of dealing with. It's how are you perceiving the world right now? And we we may let if I just make a an example, we might have a person in a school situation who's doing mathematics, and yesterday they did mathematics and there was no anxiety, and so we know that that person has the skills to deal with mathematics, but in the next twenty four hour cycle that they've been through, they've gone home, they've had their nighttime routine, they've been with their parents, their siblings and and who knows what. And then they've come back at school. And we don't know what's happened in that twenty four hour cycle to see what that person's current status is of anxiety. But now, because of what what's happened, there could be other triggers that have gone on for that person that we're totally unaware of. And we now give them mathematics again. But today they start off doing mathematics with an already heightened state of anxiety as a result of other historical factors that have happened in their life. And so now the same task that yesterday was one they perceived they're equipped to deal with is today one that they no longer feel that they're equipped to deal with. That gives a really tangible way for parents, for teachers, for workers, you know, for workers in, in care professions to take a step back from ever, ever judging, um, thinking that you know what someone needs, um, but also the sympathy. I, I, I can feel what you're sharing here 
kind of blows sympathy up as well. Sympathy is an interesting word because if we look at sympathy, it in of itself can become a judgment. And what we're often doing is is sympathising with a person saying and aligning to the fact that I don't feel like you are equipped to deal with this. Yeah, but the reality is, is, is life's presenting us and representing us lesson after lesson after lesson, and it will keep representing um, a similar theme of lessons until we have um, self-mastered that particular aspect of life. And then it doesn't mean that that lesson stops. It just means that we have mastered it so it's no longer uh, a major issue for us. But when life presents us the lessons that we are yet, and and you'll hear that I introduce the word yet a lot because it's one of my favourite words, what life presents us is the lessons we have not yet mastered. But a lesson not yet mastered is only a lesson that we haven't yet dedicated um, our efforts to actually mastering that particular part of life. So when we sympathise with a person, what we're saying is we're sympathising with you because you've not yet mastered the the lessons of life that are being presented or represented to you. And we often go into, well, I'll help you, I'll do it for you, or I'll fix this situation for you. But unfortunately, that's harming because in the harming aspect, we're basically saying, I'll take that life lesson away from you, even though I know it's going to be represented again in the future. Mm. I'd much rather deal with it the first time than have to go through something again and again and again. Well, that's the way that will support people's development. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Giving it again a very practical approach. When we're worried about what our children are experiencing at school, do we give off that, even if it's unspoken, do we give off that feeling to our children and then make them worried about thinking that they can't deal with what's at school? Do we kind of take their legs out from under them without necessarily meaning to? Yeah, our own fears can be projections that we place on other people in all aspects of life. And a lot of the time, um, parents are being revisited with what they actually experienced at school as well. And not always there were positive experiences that, that people have experienced. And there can be that fear that we don't want our children to have to experience the negativities that we have or that we've seen others experience or that we know that's possible. Rather than approaching it from the perspective of, well, how do we equip our, our children to learn how to respond to what life's going to present? Because the... Uh, the reality is that there is going to be lesson after lesson at school. And when I talk about lesson, um, there's a big difference between the curriculum and what I say is the life classroom. Mm. So when when we go to school, um, there's an element that we're going to learn the curriculum. And there's a reality that we need to learn to read and write and do mathematics and the other curriculum activities that are presented to us. But there's many other aspects of life lessons that are going to be presented to us, whether it be in the school or the workplace or the home or the community setting. Um, And that's what I call the classroom of life. And so we're going to have um, people who say mean comments. We're going to have people that don't share. We're going to have people that that may um, be jealous or um, I could go on and on um, about the life lessons. Like nobody teaches us how to deal with death or, or a friend no longer wanting to play with us or losing a game or um, not uh, making a mistake and, and feeling like I need to do things perfectly. And um, there, there's an endless supply of life lessons that are being presented to us that are not actually part of the school curriculum. So the curriculum is very much needed, but we also need to look at the rest of life and go, who's teaching us to deal with um, perceiving that our our parents have rejected us in that situation? Or who's teaching us to deal with um, thinking that the teacher doesn't want to spend time with us and they they prefer this person over here? Or who's teaching us how to deal with um, losing a game and and making a mistake and, and so on? Because they are life lessons. Those Everything that you've listed there happens as a teenager, as a university or a college student or in your first work experience. It, it happens all the way through your working career. It happens when your grandparents. I mean, none of these things 
change. So learning life skills for how to deal with the fact that, you know, Sally prefers Tom to you, um, they are life lessons. They're skills you need to learn because you're not always going to get the response or the connection or the attention that you think you need. Exactly. And that's why when I, I introduced previously that life lessons are presented or represented, um, you're highlighting that point that it might be presented when we're at kindergarten and then represented in grade one and five and grade 12 and university and um, when I meet the in-laws and it keeps going on and on. So the, um, the same, I always talk about a difference between a story and a theme. So life presents us incidences and that's what we call the story. That's the current story that's happening at that, that given moment. But behind every story, there's a theme, the same way as if we read a book from a, from an author. You'll often see that they present many, many different stories. Um, but behind each of those stories, there's often a common theme, like there might be a theme of romance or a theme of thriller or a theme of uh, a detective and solving the crime type situation. But that, that's often a theme that runs through the same author. But the same thing happens with us in life is that we're often presented stories where there might be a character in kindergarten, uh, the place that we are, the activity that's happening. But behind that story, there's a theme. Let's say I'm uh, playing with my, my best friend in kindergarten. And obviously in kindergarten, your best friend is your best friend forever, um, is the way that we perceive that. And then a new person joins the class and my friend, my best friend forever, has now gone off and played with somebody else. Now, that's the story that I can present to you at that given moment and that story hurts. But the life lesson behind that is learning how to, um, how to understand and, and not personalise what we see as rejection. Mm. Yeah, but if I have that situation, then later in life, I might be um, applying for a job yeah, completely different story, and I don't get the job. That same theme behind that is rejection. Mm -hmm. So it's not learning to deal with every single story. It's looking at what's the theme behind every story, um, because often we'll find that the same theme is represented time and time again as we go throughout our lifespans. When we come to a new year or the end of a year and the start of a new year, we always say, okay, I recognize there are things that are not working. We, we get offered a time for reflection. And for different religions, that new year comes at different times. But very often it results in a new year's resolution. I recognize there's a pattern of behavior that's not working or there's something I want rather than don't want. Um, I'm going to do it. I'm definitely going to give up smoking. I'm definitely going to go to the gym. I'm definitely not going to eat four blocks of chocolate in one go and lo and behold within a couple of days weeks or months we're back to the same pattern of behavior so can we talk about new year's resolutions when we have the best intentions of the world how we can how they so often fail absolutely but before we talk about resolutions i'd just like to introduce a little bit of the um, deficit in the industry to do with behaviour change. And a lot of what is going on with behaviour change is that we're focusing on strategies that we might call relief-based strategies or solutions. And what relief and solution-based strategies is they're trying to relieve the symptoms of the current story that's happening. So it's basically saying, I get that this current situation is, is difficult or challenging, but let's do whatever we can to take those symptoms away. So it's basically what we say in the Body Life Skills Program. It's addressing the body, but it's not teaching people the skills to deal with life. So what, what happens with relief and solution-based strategies is that we may get short-term change, but very, very rarely do we get lasting behavior change. And there's a difference between those two words because we might change um, like the um, chocolate eating habit. We might not eat those four blocks of chocolate for a week or a month. Yeah, but coming back around to two or three months later before we know what we've got those um, four blocks of chocolate again. 
So we would say that change has occurred, but it hasn't actually been lasting. And if you look at society as, as a whole, whether it's dealing with mental health or behaviour or, or disability or um, the Justice Department, and, and I could go on, one of the biggest issues is, is that we're basing our strategies based on relief and solutions. Now, coming back to your question about resolutions, um, I was reading in the paper on um, uh, either New Year's Day or, or soon after and seeing the word resolution. And I broke the word down and I saw that it's actually made up of two parts. And the first word is re, which um, I, I took to mean repeat. And then the next word is solutions. So what resolutions are, are actually doing is asking us to repeat solutions that typically don't bring about lasting change. And the issue with that is that we're never addressing the root cause of behaviour. And it's not until we address the root cause of behaviour that we're ever going to get lasting change. Is it possible for people to address root causes of behaviour themselves or do they always need help to be able to do that? Uh, it is possible to, if, a, if a person's prepared to be extremely honest um, and truthful about what's really going on for them, it's absolutely possible to be able to do that. Um, but typically, and even for myself uh, as a behaviour specialist, I seek support regularly to be able to get to the root cause of the behaviours that I personally have not yet been able to change on my own. Because what you picked up there about the solutions is that they are, can be so familiar that we can actually choose, because I'm sure there's a choice made somewhere along the line, not to notice that they're actually a solution. And again, please correct me if, I, if I'm wrong here, but when we have a solution, if we don't have the skills to deal with the issue that we're using that solution to measure, when the feeling comes up, we, it, it, is, it feels to me like it's life-threatening. And, and it's illogical, but there's a part of the brain that says, if you take my cigarette away from me, if you take my sugar away from me, I will not, I'll die. I mean, I, mm. I you know, I, I, when I look back to my addiction to sugar and it was fairly strong, it was masking my exhaustion. And it, yeah. my exhaustion was so deep that I thought if I don't have that sugar, I will literally fall in a heap. I won't be able to parent. I won't be able to get out of bed. So yes. it was life-threatening on some level. Absolutely, because it, it because of that root cause. That say, for example, your exhaustion, or for me, I like to often bring it back to drug taking, illicit drug taking of some sort. And a lot of the time, people who are taking drugs, whether that be um, alcohol or or marijuana or other forms of drugs. But if you look at um, a population of people who are taking these drugs, that typically they are deeply sensitive people. And this world doesn't often accommodate for us to learn how to, to be living in this world with our sensitivity. Yeah, but a lot of people are taking these drugs are so sensitive that they don't feel equipped to deal with the world because they're feeling everything. They feel uh, the rejection that comes from others. They get hurt when they hear a raised voice tone or an argument or um, I could go on and list an array of different things, but they're so, so deeply sensitive and often personalise a lot of what's going on around them. And so when you take the drugs, it actually numbs your body from being able to feel everything that you're feeling. So if we just simply address the drug-taking behaviour and say stop taking drugs, and then suddenly the person is left with this overwhelming sense of everything that they can um, have blocked out from feeling they're now able to feel again, it does become overpowering. So unless the therapy that's um, supporting that person is based on supporting them to live in this world, remaining sensitive but learning how to be in this world with that sensitivity without having to block it out, people with um, all good intention of I'm never going to take drugs again and they so strongly believe that when they um, are participating in the world and their sensitivity is, um, 
ignited and they're now becoming aware of all that they had previously been able to block out, their often only go-to is to go back to the behaviours that they've used in the past that work to block out that sensitivity. And whether it be sugar with exhaustion or drugs with sensitivity or I could just, uh, again, it's an endless list, unless we address that root cause, there will never be the lasting behaviour change. It just brings so much understanding. And reduces the judgement. Yes. We need to bring understanding that that what is logical in our minds is not necessarily logical for that person and that body. So with a someone who can't get off an illicit drug, uh, understanding the, the enormous sensitivity that they live with, mm. that they they are not equipped uh, unless you offer them those life skills. They're not yet equipped to deal with what they have in front of them. But we can create an opportunity to learn those life skills so that they actually choose not to uh, numb themselves in that way when they feel more equipped. So you're building a skill and not necessarily addressing the addiction. Absolutely. And, and one of the words that came to me when you were talking is the word foundation. Um, and I talk about this a lot in the third book that, that's soon to be released. But to support lasting behaviour change, it's very, very important that we create a foundation where people feel safe to express, where people feel safe to be them, where people feel safe to explore the aspects of life that they haven't yet mastered. Because embarking on the, um, the journey of, of lasting behaviour change can be very confronting. Um, it's asking us to address the parts of life that we've not yet mastered. So it's basically confronting areas that we might call our weaknesses. And to go down that path is, um, is a very, very big step for a lot of people. But unless people feel safe and have a foundation um, that's been provided to them or that they have learned to provide to themselves, uh, it's very, um, it can be a very difficult journey. And and judgment is one of those things that adds to a rocky foundation. It doesn't add to the safe foundation, whereas bringing understanding um, allows the people to feel more safe to explore what's going on for them. So when we're looking at New Year's resolutions, re-solutions, we're going to say, yeah. okay, let's throw out the solution. Let's look at lasting behaviour change. Where do we start? Um, you've mentioned body life skills. If body is the first part of that trilogy, is the body where we start? Yeah, so the body life skills program is about bringing understanding and lasting change. But when we look at the body, what I always say is our body is expressing through behaviours, words, thoughts and feelings all of the time. And the word expressing is important or, or communicating because our body, whatever it's communicating through the behaviours we're using, whether they're what we call thumbs up or thumbs down behaviours or thumbs up and thumbs down words or thoughts or feelings. The thumbs up and thumbs down is just simply saying this is a preferred behaviour or this is a non-preferred behaviour, but it's not a judgment to ever say this behaviour is right or wrong. And unfortunately, that's a, an approach that society has, is that we make judgment on that behaviour is okay, but that behaviour is not okay. But from my perspective, there's no behaviour that's right or wrong. A behaviour is just communicating to us. But the question that we need to ask is, well, what is it communicating? And what it's communicating to us is how is the person experiencing life? Yeah, so a body that's um, relatively free of anxiety is basically communicating to us that that person perceives that they have the skills to respond to what lies presenting at that given moment. But when a person's anxiety levels start to increase, then that's simply saying to us that that body is now being presented with aspects of life that it does not yet perceive that it's equipped to respond to. So part of um, society's... Um, error with behavior change is that they focus on the body yeah and they they're basically saying that behavior that's coming from that body is wrong so we need to change that behavior to get back to what we consider is right 
And so it's all about changing the behavior. But from my perspective, as soon as a body starts exhibiting any form of unwanted behaviors, words, thoughts, or feelings, my first question is, I wonder why. Mm. And the I wonder why is just simply saying, well, I wonder what the part of life is that that person does not yet perceive they're equipped to deal with. Mm. And so it's being open and trying to bring the understanding to that behavior is not wrong. It's communicating to us the part of life that they're experiencing, a part of life that they don't yet perceive they're equipped to deal with. In a conversation with someone, someone maybe, uh, say, your, your, your child may be screaming and shouting at you, it's about not reacting to their screaming and shouting, but reading almost uh, what, as you're saying, I wonder why they are feeling they need to scream and shout at me. What are they yep. trying to communicate with me? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about life, I also um, introduce the phrase often of pictures and smash pictures. Now, pictures are just simply the images that we have that tell us about the way we think life should be. And we have pictures about the way we think other people should be and pictures about the way we think the environment should be. Um, and we, we're, we're creating pictures all day, every day. What we should be eating, shouldn't be eating, what people should be wearing, should be wearing, should be saying, shouldn't be saying. Um, but it's an endless, endless supply of pictures that, that we have um, daily. Now, every single time a person's anxiety starts to increase, it's typically because one of their pictures is not happening according to their shoulds or their wants or their expectations or, as I often say, our attachments because we often get attached to our pictures being a certain way. And it's that attachment to our picture that often triggers the anxiety because when our picture doesn't happen, we have what I'm calling a smash picture. And it's that smash picture is the aspect of life that we often don't perceive we're completely equipped to deal with, particularly if our attachment to that picture is, is very, very heightened. So if we've got the child screaming at us, we could scream back and often, and often people are screaming back saying, don't you scream at me, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is often um, just escalating the behaviour because then we go on this cycle of I smash your picture, you smash my picture, I'll smash your picture, and then it just mm. keeps getting heightened and, and nothing is, there's no understanding that comes from that. It's just a, a righteousness that comes in the, the aspect of saying my picture's right and yours is wrong and I'm going to do whatever I can to make my picture happen. Or we could have a child screaming at us and go, well, I wonder what their smash picture is. I wonder what's going on for them that they're perceiving difficult because I know this child and I know that at the core they're an awesome, amazing, lovable being. Yeah, I know when their body is free of anxiety, they are just exquisite to be with. So what's going on for them that they're now using these behaviours that don't match this exquisite being that I innately know them to be? And so you first and foremost see them for their um, awesome, amazing, lovable being that they innately are and then go, now this behaviour is coming from them, but that behaviour is not who they are. So this behaviour doesn't match. So this behaviour is only occurring because there's something going on for them that they don't perceive they're equipped to deal with. Mm. Very often we'll say, I'll stop screaming when you stop screaming. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a, a recipe for absolute disaster. Yeah, I'll love you when you love me. Yeah, I'll... it's very conditional. Yeah, absolutely. And I often talk on this show about being the change you want to see and you being the person that takes that first step mm. um, there is a certain amount of time and space that is needed for consistency to be recognized and I'm aware that you know um, you can say I'll stop screaming when you stop screaming look I've stopped screaming for five minutes but you're still screaming at me mm. There's that time and space allowed, isn't there, when any behaviour change or lasting behaviour change is, is um, being approached? One of the core principles of the programme is that we need to live what we teach. 
um, because a lot of people learn through modeling, through reflection, and what we live is often what we get reflected back to us. So if we've got a person screaming at us, we've got to look at um, are we still contributing to that in some way or do we bring that calmness back and reflect something in a way that, that offers understanding and not the judgment. But it is very, very important to live what we teach. But a lot of people come with the approach of do what I say, not what I do. I could be treading in very dangerous hot waters now, <laughs> so I'm going to caveat. I'm going to apologise to any practitioners, any parents who get offended what I next say. by what I next say. Is there any possibility that the reason why when we're trying to bring um, offer change in someone else's life, we're doing it from a place of theory as opposed to from our body or from what we're living ourselves. So we're talking a really good talk and we're completely convincing in what we say, um, but it's not coming from what we live and therefore the person who's listening goes, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yes, it's fantastic, but you know what? you're not showing me that it's safe for me to do that because you actually don't do it yourself. Absolutely. And that comes back to what we were discussing earlier about foundations. Mm. Yeah. In, in that our every movement is contributing to a foundation. Mm. And the word, like if you take a house, for example, every house in this world has a foundation. But why is it that some houses with, uh, withstand the storm and other houses do not withstand the storm? And more often than not, it's, it's not saying that they don't have a foundation, but the word quality must be introduced. But what quality foundation was that house built on? Now, if the house was built on a very strong quality foundation and the storm comes through, that house is more than likely to be left standing after the storm passes. But if that house was born, uh, was developed based on, on very um, poor material, poor quality material, the, the quality of that foundation is not one of a high standard. And so when the storm comes through, it's likely that that house will have some tatters or, or be totally um, taken down as a result of the storm. But every relationship that we have, whether that be a relationship with ourselves or whether that be a relationship with uh, our children or our clients or our partners or our friends um, is all based on a foundation. So we all have a foundation in each of our relationships, but the question is what quality foundation do we actually have in each of our relationships and what's the quality of the material? And the quality of the material, the material includes each of the behaviours we use when that person, when we're with that person, each of the words, the thoughts, the feelings that we have when we're with people all contribute to the foundation that we provide with them. And so our question is what quality are we actually offering in our movements to create the foundation? So when the storm comes, and storms will come, um, in the sense that we'll be presented with life challenges and, and uh, tricky situations to address and to deal with. Whether that relationship is left standing at the end is a result of the quality of the material that we've put into that foundation. That's life-changing, isn't it, really? Because there are some examples of arguments or situations you can have with people and you wonder how you're still friends at the end of it or how you still want to talk to it might be a relation how you still want to be in the relationship and sometimes it is to do with the foundation of love that you have that even though the uh, expression was clumsy and sometimes abusive the the core of what they were saying was truth and it's just the expression of that so if someone's trying to tell you that um, you are abusive in, and I'm thinking of a child here. If a child is trying to tell a parent that even though they think they're doing the right thing, the way they're telling you is really disrespectful. It feels rude. It feels telling rather than showing all of those things that the child can want a, a, a quality of love to come through 
And even though they have the foundation there, they won't put up with that because of the quality of the foundation that's there or vice versa, that they're calling for something that they know hasn't been there. Yeah, so at the core, everybody knows what love is. And when we experience an expression from any other person that's not love, then there can be a jarring in our body. Yeah, so there's a registering of that. But that jar or that, that expression that we experience of not love is actually one of those aspects of life that we're yet to self-master because we, we can either react to that expression of lack of love and deliver something back that is equally lack of love. Yeah, or when that um, expression comes that's lacking love, we can learn how to respond to that. And so the responding is bringing understanding and and learning to to go, okay, I know that that's not that person, but something's going on for them to be able to express that. And therefore, we learn not to personalise the expression of lack of love from another, rather than when we react, the reaction comes because we go, but you should be doing it differently. Yeah. And that should is based on the pictures that we've created that you should only express love and now you're not expressing love, so you smash my picture and I personalise it and then we react according to the personalisation. We've really pulled it apart. (laughs) I have to leave my listeners and myself with those next steps. We're not going to go for a New Year's resolution. We are going to go for lasting behaviour change. We're going to build life skills And we're going to say, I'm going to be honest about something that's not working, a a behavior that, you know, we could call thumbs down, but without judgment, we just say it's not. Now, what was the word used? How do we start doing some building? Cool. So um, I can offer uh, the, the five steps that are really part of the Body Life Skills Program. But even though there's three steps, body life skills, I break it down a little bit. So the first step of the body life skills program is saying we need to develop a relationship with our body. And our body is, as I mentioned, is expressing behaviors, words, thoughts and feelings all of the time. And sometimes our body is expressing behaviors, words, thoughts and feelings that are free of anxiety and or limited anxiety. And sometimes where we might get tense shoulders or our voice tone might change or we might start using words that we typically wouldn't use when our body's free of anxiety. So the, the first step is developing that foundational understanding is what does our body look like, sound like, think like and feel like when it's free of anxiety. We call that code blue in the Body Life Skills Program. So what does our body look like, sound like, think like and feel like when it's at code blue? But as soon as the body is presented with an aspect of life that it it perceives as challenging, we start exhibiting signs of anxiety. Yeah, so our behaviours start to escalate and we start to use either a lower intensity or a medium intensity or a higher intensity of unwanted behaviours, words, thoughts and feelings. But that change from code blue to away from code blue, most of us don't have that relationship with what's our body like at code blue, so we don't register that we're no longer at code blue. But that's one of the most important steps that we could be focusing on because the relationship with our body, when we start listening to our body, we go, wow, it's telling us a lot. It's telling us how we are experiencing life. So as soon as we presented with the first symptom of unwanted behavior, where thoughts or feelings, whether that's just ever so slight of a muscle just tensed or my jaw just tightened or I just had that um, thought about that person that I know that I wouldn't have that thought about them at code blue but it's picking up those tiniest of, of changes in our body as soon as we've done that so step one is what's the relationship with our body at code blue the second step is ah oh, now I'm away from code blue yeah so we clock that and then we go well I wonder why yeah, so now the third step is starting to investigate the aspects of life that that person is um, reacting to. So I wonder why is, is asking a series of questions, but I wonder what the part of life is that we're perceiving as challenging. I wonder what my smash picture is. So as soon as we identify those aspects of life, we don't judge that to be right or wrong because 
Um, I, I've always said that honesty without judgment is one of the only ways to heal. So you never judge the body as right or wrong and you never judge the aspects of life that you or another person has not yet mastered to be right or wrong. But as soon as we identify, ah, this is a part of life that I don't yet perceive I'm equipped to deal with, then we go step three, skills. Well, who has mastered that part of life? Yeah, or who's on their way to mastering that part of life because we're not looking for perfection. But if we're able to identify people who have started to master that part of life, then we go, ah, then potentially my life teacher for that particular skill. Yeah, so if I um, have not yet developed the skills to, to manage my money in a particular way and money is something that's causing me anxiety, I don't necessarily go to somebody else who is also having the same challenges with money. But I just observe in life and go, well, who's somebody that seems to have a good relationship with money and feel uh, quite solid with their relationship with money? And then we go to them and say, hey, this is a part of life I've not yet mastered, but I see it's a part of life that you're well on your way to mastering. Can you give me some tips? Like, can I, can I become your student at this particular moment? So our life skills teachers are constantly changing and it's part of the one of the most important steps for a student is to be discerning as to who is going to be your teacher. And the discernment is that we choose people not by qualification or profession, yeah, but we choose people by observation of who we see is actually mastering or, or addressing that part of life for themselves. So to change behaviour, it's identify when our body is reacting to life work out what's that part of life that we're reacting to, yeah, and just simply see it as uh, that's just a part of life that I don't yet perceive I've got the skills to deal with. And the third step is, well, how do I get the skills to bring about lasting behaviour change so that I then become a, a person who's on my way to mastering that part of life that I didn't yet perceive that I was mastering? And it becomes a constant cycle because daily we're being represented with aspects of life that we've not yet mastered so when I was three or four or five I hadn't yet mastered the skills of tying my shoelaces but that was just a part of life that once I dedicated the time and effort to be able to tie my shoelaces it's now something that's no longer a trigger in my life so I still need to tie my shoelaces it's just something that is well equipped I'm, I'm well equipped to deal with but I may not have been fully equipped to deal with my finances. So it's a different part of life that I'm making um, the, the steps to be able to self-master. And that's what puts us all, whether we're one or 99 or anything, it puts us all in the same boat because we've all got parts of life that we're yet to master. It's just that the, the difference between each person is what I've already mastered, you may not have. And what you've already mastered, I may not have. So at any given moment, we can swap roles to be the forever student of life or the forever teacher of life. And I couldn't think of a better place to end the interview. Thank you, Lucy. There were some real gems in that interview, weren't there? Tanya often refers to us as being amazing, lovable human beings and saying, whoops, when you've made an error, when you've fallen down, perhaps yet again, just taking that moment to say, either I wonder why I end up in that situation, or I wonder why this person in front of me is behaving in that way when I know that they are a truly lovable human being at other times, or in their essence, is who they are naturally. I hope in the course of this show, you don't feel like I've smashed too many pictures. But remember that if I have, you know what, that's okay, because it uncovers things that may be the cause of some of our unwanted behaviors. So let's just do a top recap. Who do you choose for a mentor? Choose people by observation. Choose your mentor by observation. Who is mastering or addressing that part of life for themselves, the pattern of behavior for themselves? Who do you feel is going to be able to support you best 
to address those issues. If we judge people based on letters after their name or the titles they have, we lose out on on seeing how so many of us can be mentors to each other. I know that I've got letters after my name. I've got many titles depending on which hat I've got on. I could certainly share with others about engaging in life, self-care, expressing yourself. But there are other areas of my life where I have to go to someone else for the support about how do I do that? We all have pictures of what we think an unwanted behavior is. And this was another one of her top tips. Don't have a picture. Consider whether or not the fact that you find it difficult to concentrate or your mind keeps wandering, that could be as much of an indication that something's amiss and your body's trying to communicate to you that you don't yet feel equipped to cope with, to cope with what's in front of you as a four-year-old having a tantrum in the middle of a supermarket or um, a colleague having a tantrum in the middle of a meeting. Remember, it's not that you or I don't have the skills. It's that we perceive we don't yet have the skills to deal with what's in front of us. And the yet word leaves the door wide open for learning and remembering. Tanya's summary said, identify when your body is reacting to life. Work out what part of life we're reacting to. uh, It's that moment where you go, ah, That is a part of life I don't yet perceive I have the skills to deal with. Next, how do I get the skills to bring about lasting behavior change so that I then become a person that is well on the way to mastering that part of life that I didn't yet perceive I was mastering? Find a mentor, counselor, support person. Remember, it's a constant cycle. Daily, we're presented with different skills to master, and it really levels the playing field and stops us thinking that we have to have all the answers or, you know, we get to a certain age and, you know, now we can do it. We can all do it and we can all have a go before we've mastered it. So I hope you enjoyed listening. At the close, what I say each week resonates more deeply today. Remember, Regardless of what has or is happening in your life, you are and you will always be you and you are amazing. The key is to reconnect with that space and learn to build a relationship with your body so you can recognize when your body is trying to tell you something's not quite right and then seek support with the appropriate support service or person, be that mental or physical health, to build the tools to address what you do not yet feel equipped to manage look for support in the community. It is there. We just need to learn to open up to that support and trust again. Don't wait for life to come to you. Take yourself to life and be the change you want to see. Till next week's show, remember to take a moment to look after you. Connect with the amazing people in our community. Be kind, be caring, be love, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM.